Hey everybody, I'm Eric Tornberg, co-founder and partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is an episode of Venture Stories, where we deep dive on topics relating to tech and business with some of the world's leading experts. This episode is about the state of biotech and features Dylan Morris of CRV and Kane McClary, partner at KDT Ventures. We talk about investment opportunities in the space, how to think about building a company in the sector, and we get into a detailed breakdown of the various subsectors that make up biotech. Dylan Kane, welcome to Venture Stories, podcast brought to you by Village Global. How does it feel? Awesome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for being here. Okay, so the other day we had a practice phone call, you know, for this podcast, and it got a little heated, got a little intense. It was so intense that at one point, I won't say who, but someone accused the other of Trumpian tendencies. (laughs) And so I was just curious, uh, how would you describe the sort of crux of your differences in views? We're going to get into the state of biotech, but if you could focus on one sort of nuanced difference of opinion what, what might you say? Yeah, so well, I can start with that. The biggest thing to me um, when we were speaking on the phone uh, was your view of sort of consumer technologies um, and sort of what's considered legitimate in the eyes of a consumer and then also the eyes of a, a regulatory body, what's useful in the world of science. And to me, I think you and I have different definitions of what's an appropriate consumer tech versus what isn't. My, in my world, there's a number of consumer texts that are coming online, like uh, probiotics, let's say, um, that could be useful uh, to folks within the biotechnology space. But at that point in time, you jumped into sort of people that were making insulin <laughs> in a garage <laughs> as a do-it-yourself biohacker. I feel like there's a happy median somewhere in between there. So wait, let me restate. So the difference between one of the people working... Diligent effort on the Open Insulin Project. And by the way, dear listeners, this is an important project to know about because as you've probably read recently, people have died for lack of access to insulin due to cost and other aspects of the inherent stupidity of the U.S. health system. So people are making it at home and and they're working towards a future where they can make the insulin and inject it in themselves as a way to treat their disease. Now, is that what you think of when you hear consumer biotech? That's what is that I, the first example you hear? No, that's that's what I think of when I talk about the future of synthetic biology and the fact that the tools of developing biological systems are becoming easy enough to use for everybody. Okay, so then take a step back. What's an appropriate consumer tech? Okay, so a different question is. I think this is what prompted the conversation as we were talking about specific examples of marketing-heavy, consumer-focused testing companies that were promising a lot of potential information and value out of those tests that where the, the data has yet to be proven uh, that such value exists. So it's very easy for us from a 10,000-foot view to imagine that we will look at all of the data, genomics, proteomics, transcriptomics, you know, we could go on, integrate them all through dot, 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 deep learning, and end up with predictive models. That's a great story, but the devil is in the details in a way that it isn't in any of the other sciences. 
Right. So that's, but that's testing. So then what about actual sort of, so that, that gives you an answer, but what about the, anything within the consumer therapeutic space? So to me, I think of uh, technologies that are like utilizing skin microbiome species to treat acne or something like that. Like that's a consumer based over the counter, non-regulatory, non-regulated biotech. So to me, I feel like when, when you hear consumer, you jump to diagnostic. Or testing. Okay, great. So, by the way, I love cosmetics. My, my ex-co-founder, he's a great chemist. He's now at L'Oreal working on really interesting things. They're, they're, they have an incubator here, right? There are active efforts in the cosmetics industry to use more intelligent processes for manufacturing their ingredients. Most of the world understands that petroleum-based solutions are probably a problem, and so biological Everyone's looking there, and I agree it's important. What I what I find problematic is overpromising and underdelivering because marketing. And I think hype is an important wave to ride as we follow a field and follow the money. But what we don't want to see is an explosion that takes resources away from what I think is the most important endeavor facing humanity today, which is to accelerate the pace of biomedical innovation. Because every day sooner we find a cure, we save a life. All right. So then let's take a step back from consumer. So uh, to me, the, I'm with you. I'm really interested then in what is existing within regulatory, regulated spaces today. Consumer will follow, let's say. Okay. So um, the big topics that come to mind when I think about like a regulated space within biotechnology is everyone's talking about IO, immuno-oncology, immunotherapy, whatever you want to call it these days. And then there are other sort of uh, programmatized um, biologics that we're starting to see exist within different um, realms or different diseases. What are some of what I, to me, I think immuno-oncology is really interesting. However, it's still running into the same problem of non-specificity. Like you're right. Here's the thing. Immuno-oncology is hot because farmers paying for it because we're finding cures. Great. Let's find cures faster. It is one aspect of a big picture story about the way cancer works and, as you know, the way our immune system works. And what's fascinating to me is the way that the lessons we're learning about the immune system's inherent surveillance, sentry, and attack systems that fort off and fight off this cancer, when they go too far, they might make autoimmune. They, they may cause neurological disorders. Right. And all of those lessons we're learning about how the immune system works are going to lead to cures for all sorts of diseases. Yeah. We're just starting with cancer because that's where the money is. Yeah, but I think it's really interesting because the, the biggest thing you have to do in venture, right, is, is in, there's a there's a big venture capitalist that says this all the time, is that what, what exists, what, what can exist in five years that can't exist today? Or like what are we supposed to be thinking about five years from now that we're not thinking about today? And I think you hit on a great point there of immunotherapy, we're starting to throw the C word around, at least on a subset of patients that are pushing the Kaplan-Meier curve, which is the survival curve higher. What are we going to have to worry about if cancer or something like that becomes a chronic disease and what companies are going to start to be created within that space in biotechnology? Because once a field gets hot, it gets crowded, right? And like as an investor, you have to try to be appropriately timed as to what's coming next and be early in those companies. So I think you hit on a great point there that we may, autoimmunity is already an issue natively, right? In a number of diseases, whether it's lupus or systemic sclerosis or whatever different autoimmune, multiple, um, oh man, uh, multiple sclerosis. 
what companies are going to start to go after or try to ameliorate those secondary effects of, let's say, if cancer becomes a cure in immunotherapy and who's starting those. And that's something that's really interesting in terms of a white space that I don't see a ton of activity in. Do you? Sure. Yeah? Oh, yeah. I mean, that you go to the NIH conferences and, and you look at who's funding. In basic of, science. Yeah. You see a lot of activity in basic science. Well, we so, don't invest, we don't, so that's another thing. We don't invest in science projects. So let's just talk about the difference between investing and, and, and finding cures and the complications of the difference between research and science and commercialization because it's a challenge to face a lot of good science that raises money out of the government, out of NIH or DOD to push forth some of this science and there's a point at which it needs to move faster, the translational step, as we enter into the clinic and, and begin testing on people. And the resources to do that are not sufficient to push every project forward. And so we as investors use our very rational decision criteria for making investments that will have financial returns and minimize risk. A lot of those projects don't fit in the venture category. So one of the most exciting things I'm seeing right now is the relationships between the interested parties who make impact investments towards cures that they care about, investing directly in companies that are not quite Silicon Valley ready. And Boston is, a, is an entirely different ecosystem that I hope we can talk about <laughs> at some point. Guys, let me, uh, on a high level... How would you describe your investment thesis in, in biotech? You know, what sectors are you excited about? What sectors are you not excited about? Sort of subsector, subsectors. And how would you describe how your thesis has evolved over time and how you expect it to evolve in the future as the, as the field evolves? I mean, my pers personal thesis. So, you know, I've, I've, at CRV, we're investing in, in what we are terming a bioengineering initiative. And we think about bioengineering very broadly in the sense that there's a, there's a lot you can do once biology becomes a discipline for which engineering tools and approaches and methodologies are pertinent. Like, it's not that until we understand it, and we don't understand it to several orders of approximation. Biology is the most complicated system on the planet, full stop, and our brains are the most complex of those. So, so there's a lot of understanding happening. And it's exciting as new data, new technologies, new ways to accumulate new kinds of data, and all of those data are integrated into intelligent understanding, like, like models that have parameters that we understand, I mean. Um, and, and, and in that case, we want to look at companies that are taking advantage of that new data and automation, high-throughput approaches to systematically screen orders of magnitude more something than was ever possible before. Right. And certainly computation is a big component of that. Right. There are we need to be learning. We need the data advantage as as the company builds. And that's what sets them apart and lets them build something big and defensible going forward. Uh, as for particular areas, it's really interesting. You know, as as we started to craft this practice, my initial feeling was broad. And, and I'm certainly interested in applications in agriculture and chemicals where we don't, don't steal my thunder. It's not your thunder. <laughs> <laughs> We did that too at, at my previous firm. I'm, I'm super interested in it as a high-level uh, application area for this future-forward bioengineering. But, but for now, uh, we're very focused on the human health side of the equation, and that means as close to people as possible. And whether that's platforms for discovering new drugs, treatments, cures, to 
measurement and diagnostics for identifying diseases earlier when they're curable or, or treatable to screening populations, essentially looking at the data-oriented approach towards the problems for which pharma are customers. And, and I say that because I've also spent time looking at and thinking about companies for whom insurance is the customer or for whom hospitals are the customer. And I find it very difficult to get enthusiastic about working within the fundamentally broken like payer provider system that we have in America. Right. How do you guys think about it differently uh, from Andreessa Horowitz, who's sort of gotten a lot of... I mean, yeah, I don't know. You have to ask them how they think about yeah. it. But like, I think you can read Vijay's first post yep. about the, the three areas. And they did a second one when Jorge joined about like, yep. how that thinking is evolving. And I think it's great. And you can point to Data Collective also, you know, got the computational care and the computational biology. And I think there's a lot to do in healthcare. Mm -hmm. For us, our initial focus is, is in those areas I'm, yep. I'm describing. Um, but I think that doesn't separate us from the broader possibility. I think anytime you are rationally engineering a biological system to do something that you program it to do, you're doing computational biology. Uh, we need to stop thinking it's just software. So I think I think that's that's a good point. So I, I think how do you think about yeah, it? Yeah, I think more linearly here on all of this. So um, to me, uh, cells are computers and DNA is source code. And essentially, um, over the last ten years, we've commoditized reading the code and reading the instruction book. Um, and so we need three things for bioengineering to work, at least I think so. The first one is we need to be able to read all of the code and understand sort of exactly what the code stands for. We've gotten there. We can, we've sequenced so many different species and in general, and like we've, we've gotten amazing biological operating systems out of that, like CRISPR. So it's, we've only gotten that because we were able to read the code. Secondly, we need to be able to write the code. So it's not, it's not enough to understand that the electrical circuit on the chipboard in your computer is going to do something. You need to actually be able to type command lines in and have it do what you want it to do. And then the third thing is, as Dylan alluded to, is biology is really, really complex. It is, it's an unbelievably complex math problem. And the issue is we've been training PhDs to study some tiny niche of biology, expecting them to go to meetings and publish papers and network out that niche in some pretty figure in like figure seven of a cell or a nature paper. And we think it's that simple. It's not that simple. It's a really hard math problem. There are a lot of secondary side effects that occur if you think about it linearly and try to design things linearly. And so when I, what I asked myself around 2010 was, was when are we going to, realize the promise of programming biology. Um, when do cells actually become manipulatable computers? And to me, we went through a genetic engineering revolution in the 90s. We had a patient that died at Penn which, with a, a bad sort of viral vector. And then we, boom, we hit a winter in genetic engineering. Then clean tech came around. We thought, hey, we can make oil from algae. You know, we can figure this out. But then we had the crash and it turns out it's really hard to scale that because they were thinking about it pretty linearly. What happened is, I think, is one, we were able to read everything by 2010, 2011. You can look at a sequencing curve and see how cheap it is to sequence things these days. But once we could read it, we were able to apply frontier computational technologies and automated high-throughput systems to create the data needed to start to solve parts of biology we've never understood before and could never understand. We're dumb humans, right? We have a really smart calculator in front of us that we use every day in a computer. And so what we've been doing is instead of looking, there's an old adage where there's a drunk guy on the street, right? And he's sitting out and he's looking for his keys 
and he's looking under the light and you ask him, why is he looking under the light? Um, and because he points over and says, oh, I dropped my keys over there. And he goes, I'm only looking here because that's where the light is. That's what we've been doing with biology for forever. Well, one way that like, I, I, I mean, without being hyperbolic about it, for the first 150 years of its existence, biology was stamp collecting. It was describing, organizing, and trying to make relational trees. There was nothing about mechanism. We had no clue about how anything worked. We discovered DNA in 1953. You know, we didn't understand anything about how to manipulate matter from one organism into another until the 80s. You're right about the timeline. And I think the early gene therapy work in humans got ahead of itself. And this is like the hype versus enthusiasm curve. You will say, I mean, speaking of curves, you mentioned the Moore's law. And, and I think, you know, we are there in sequencing to some extent, but like the amount of, if you ask people who participated in the early human genome effort, many are disappointed with how little we've found in the 15 or 18 years. Well, that's since. because sequencing isn't enough. So to me, sequ sequencing is your digital technology, but just to, to break it down really easily, right? So you sequence DNA. Do you know if that sequence is going to tell you whether an RNA is produced, which is the next step? Do you know whether that RNA is going to tell you whether the protein is actually produced in the cell? Do you know if that protein is actually produced? Is it going to get phosphorylated well, and yeah. actually and, active? And you left and like, out about 45 exactly. steps in, in you know, secondary splicing and translational modification and glycosylation. And listen, when we say biology is hard, we mean we don't even know what all the pieces are, let alone how they fit together. Oh, and it's a complicated temporal 3D jigsaw puzzle that moves like a machine. And if I perturb it, there are all these secondary oh, yeah. effects that I the can't The biggest start myth in, in pharma is that you can give someone a compound, like a drug, and it's going to target a target, and then everything else is going to stay constant. Like, you can't do that study in people because it's so complex, which is what makes it so hard to gather evidence and validate in large enough statistical samples, you know, medicines for people. And we play that game against the the need for treatments and the need for cures, you know, and there are, I think, really exciting opportunities to help connect those terminal patients who will sign up for clinical trials with clinical trials that are happening that they don't know about because individuals should drive that decision. And I think there is a consumerization and personalization of medicine that's happening. I just think there's smart and less smart ways to go about going to market. Yeah. Well, I, well, you brought up a, a point about agriculture and chemicals, which is important to me. So as, as a seed stage investor working in highly regulated, capitally intensive industries, so let's say healthcare, whether you're trying to get a drug across the finish line or a diagnostic across the finish line, it costs a lot of money to do it because you have to accrue those patients and have that sample size to, to end up powering um, your results. To me, what gets really interesting is, is that source code I talked about it runs everything. It runs everything around us. The chairs we're sitting in are just made from essentially a chemical reaction of petroleum. So biochemistry runs everything. So what I always say is all of a sudden the whole physical layer is in play. So biotech, like the lines get blurred to me between all of these different disciplines. And so what I get interested and excited about are circuitizations of biology. So if we continue to, I like to keep with that computer analogy for a second, if DNA's just code. If you can make a simple circuit in, in that code, you can start to do amazing things, whether it's in therapeutics or agriculture or chemicals. So all of a sudden, if I put an if this, then that circuit in a cell, 
that's an application that I can start to do all well, kinds of stuff. Hold on, I'm going to stop okay. you there because we're talking about technology. Yeah. And we're, we're not being good representatives of our discipline. Uh, we should be talking about applications and companies. And so you said application. And I, th I think... But we're in an infrastructure phase, right? Well, right. Is so, the thing. Like, if, you if we think just like computers, we're just now getting biological operating systems. CRISPR-Cat is just an operating okay. system on which now, applications are built. CRISPR is a tool, not an operating system. I, I'm, I disagree. Well, I don't understand how you mean operating system, because in my understanding, an operating system provides the API for applications and programs to run individually across it. The tools that are used to communicate those instructions to change that underlying program are the are the mathematical functions that relate between the okay. language and the system. Fair enough. And CRISPR itself is that tool that lets you make those changes. Yeah. But the, when the changes run, it's a program running spatially with proteins and RNA everywhere. It's a different thing. And the OS is more than just the genome, which is also not just the source code. It's so much more complicated than our analogies allow yeah. because computers are something, you know, we designed electronic computers from the ground up and that's not what's going on here. <laughs> like, let's go figure out how a fly works and then we'll come back and talk about people. But we're not, we're barely at bacteria, by the way. Uh, in terms of enough understanding to be anywhere near as rational about that programming as you like, what I meant about the, the being a good VC is, yeah, we're at infrastructure space, but let's talk about how we fund these things. Yep. Let's talk about applications in agriculture or industry or medicine for which those tools matter. And if you want to talk about circuits, that's one aspect, but we can broaden that conversation far more. You know, you know my personal favorite is biosensors. You know, everything should be measured. We need all of the data. There's lots of great new technologies for measuring. What we don't have are economic drivers. And, and I like this analogy, uh, which I want to make back since we're talking about computers and mention Moore's law. There's a curve that goes around that tries to show how DNA sequencing is moving faster than Moore's law in terms of the cost per base. And I think that's a great observation about the recent past. But Moore's law was never a law about the physical universe, right? It's an observation about economics, and it's driven by the demand for video games and like other uses yeah. of CPUs and GPUs and chips. Yeah. And the thing about sequencing is I don't know where five years from now, to your point, we will be in terms of the market demand for that much sequencing. Because my, my thesis is that, well, it's an observation, which is that there's only a couple places today that are driving demand for whole genome sequencing. That's pediatric, like idiopathy, these, where you see it, I thank you, laugh at me, doctor guy, um, where, you, where you see a kid that looks weird, and you're like, what's wrong with it? And you sequence the kid, you sequence the parents, and then you figure it out. Or cancer, oncology, where you sequence the tumor, and then you sequence the tumor, and then you keep sequencing the tumor. And, and both of those are important, but every other application I can imagine. Or neuropathy and myopathy. That's the other thing. It's things we can't see. Yeah. But it's wait, things but you wait, can't but see. Let me finish my point. The point is just that cancer, kids... Everything else that you can and I can imagine for which some sequence information will be important, it seems like the driver is look at as little as possible as cheaply as possible. Don't look at the whole thing. Always. So then the whole thing is just the research yeah, phase. Exactly. Yeah. And so right now we need to research cancer and we're needing to research rare diseases. Eventually these will be cheap little tests that cost nothing. So I kind of challenge the the current belief that sequencing Moore's law is a real thing that will keep happening. I think there's a point where we have enough sequencing for the research needs. And then for all of the other needs, we need 
low cost distributed point of care technology. Yeah. So then, but you're an active investor in the diagnostic space. And so if this is all going to turn into low cost, single two, five, ten 10 panel testing, directed testing on patients, how as a VC can you be comfortable that you're going to capture value? Well, yeah, and not just patients, but on plants, yeah. on cows, yep. on anything you look at. Yeah. How do you, it's hard and it's not clear that it's, it's, it's a, a good space to be investing early in right now because we're locked, especially in the healthcare system, in a broken environment where payers don't want to pay. And showing value is as difficult as it possibly can. The, the problem for healthcare and regulated market, it's not the FDA. They're especially now, they're on our side and they're fostering innovation as fast as they can. Yeah. Um, and we can get someone from the FDA on that show, yeah. actually. Um, what we don't have are aligned incentives for which payers are willing to step up and cover those costs that save lives. Uh, and we need to show that. And that investment by tech investors or, or, or traditional investors, none of it's happening. The payers are investing in things the payers want, but they're doing it slowly. Yeah. Well, it's actionability. That's what we used to always say when I was training in the hospital is you don't order or do a test unless it leads to an action. Yeah. And so we're seeing that even in the pharmacogenomics space, which is obviously just a lot of single nucleotide polymorphisms. They're very easy to measure. It's very cheap to do. Are there any big companies? But the issue, no, the issue is though too, you have lots of these spin-ups that are actually getting slapped in the wrist by FDA because they're doing all these really sketchy things in terms of sort of pushing tests to doctors. Because there's no actionability behind them. Like if just if you ever if you've ever looked at a pharmacogenomic test too, there might be one or two actionable drug um, dosing regimens that if you have this mutation, you're going to actually change yeah, your dose. The rest of them are all unknown. Exactly. May or may not affect it. Yeah. And so, do you think those should be marketed to consumers? No, absolutely. Like, not. You know, there are companies marketing those to consumers. Absolutely. Okay, great. Yeah. So we're on the same team on the consumer side for sure. Um, where I, I mean. Where I think about the opportunities for us as investors is to sort of help bridge those gaps in what's being funded. And I mentioned the NIH types before because, like, some of them should be funded based on the merits of the science. And there, that's not something we can do with our business models. But if we can help them bridge to when they're venture ready, and that's why I point at impact groups, at family offices that care about a disease and other geographies. And, and that's my favorite for diagnostics. Go where the incentives are aligned. Go partner with the, the groups there that are demanding tests, where consumers are demanding tests, where, where the payers are lined up because it's sane and rational. And it makes sense because the economics are aligned. So, so sell your diagnostics overseas, and then we'll figure out how to fix the U.S. Or, or through novel business models here where you connect it to value in the pharma chain. Well, but is the diagnostic itself even valuable there? That's the other thing. To pharma? Well, no, to the those the... Let's say the municipalities well, where things yeah. are aligned. So ROI still, is ROI. You yeah. have to wait and show. But the point is, do you get ahead of that on innovation and invest in that experiment as a payer system? Or do you wait for some third party to pay for your health economics outcome study before you line up to pay? And that's the difference between here and there. Right. And that's why I say go there for these kinds of things. Okay. What's something that you guys believe that other people in the space don't believe? Or what's up, how is your uh, how have your beliefs evolved in the last six months? Like what's something you've changed? I mean, I told done? you. I said like I went in thinking healthcare, let's right. fix it, and now I'm thinking, okay, healthcare, U.S. healthcare, go have fun. Let's yeah. go invest in like important therapeutic developments yeah. and te measurement technologies and diagnostics while they figure out their payer provider mess. Unless we see really amazing tests and then have an opportunity to go X U S. 
in which case I'm on board, or which can serve as some you know useful component within a pharma cycle for helping them locate patients, either for trials or for, for sales. I think per usual, I'm a little behind on Dylan on things in that I um, am just coming around to the realization that good, clean, useful data sets, particularly within, say, the material science space um, for biotechnology, don't exist yet. So as an investor, I think you see a lot of people coming in saying, you know, do you have machine learning and, and do you, don't you have an uh, algorithm that can help you optimize the structure of that thing to uh, optimize for this type of material or this type of uh, properties within the material you're trying to make? But it turns out like the data to even write those types of things doesn't exist yet. Like we haven't measured it. We're just now getting to the ability to manipulate those materials in novel ways. And so there are too many people asking the data question first, I feel like, before the fundamental research is there to power that data question. Yeah, I mean, sense. I guess bottom line is like we could riff on tech all day and it's awesome and bio is the most fascinating subject matter and anyone who cares about math or physics should move to biology as fast as they can. That's like, okay, opportunities for startups. Yeah, like, so I think, like I said, material science is something. So right now. But drill it down from a research question to who, who do the customers want and what are they buying? Is it software? Because I don't know if SaaS works outside of, you know, internet enterprise. Okay. Yeah. So there are, right now, the entire chemical space is built on petroleum precursors, right? right? And so, essentially, we have a whole economy that has been set up on the backs of a petroleum and oil and gas industry that provides all of our chemical precursors for whatever we want. The chairs we're sitting in, the plastic right here, whatever, like, coating is painting this window right here. Novel materials are under high demand right now because we've pretty much exhausted all of our options with current materials. And so that is a space that's incredibly interesting for new startup companies, and there's very few of those. But, like, where's the demand? Is it is it upholstery for Tesla version 12, or is it you know, upholstery for curtains? Like, where large scale construction? If you're a if you need novel 3D printing scaffolding but all of your precursors or whatever you're using as a polymer is all petrochemical derived, you don't have the same material science properties that you could want within that. Does that make sense? 72%. (laughs) All right, you go then. No, I'm not trying to go. Like, explain it. Like, the thing that I'm having trouble with is, so for me, it's like, okay, in healthcare, it's easy. Well, in the, the, like, therapeutic side, right? Clinical unmet need, full stop. Find a thing that it needs to be fixed in the healthcare world from the disease perspective and, and then go do it. And then the milestones are pretty clear about where the inflections of value are. You know, you show it, it works in vitro, and then you show it works in vivo, and then you show it, it doesn't hurt people, and you know the pathway. And each step along that line, there are buyers and there are sellers and there's a market that, that's active. And I'm trying to understand what that looks like in these other spaces because my fear is the more sort of monopolistic and like syndicalistic verticalized the sector is the harder it is for startups to find their way in and that might just be a hypothesis and i might be wrong but i'd love to understand what that market looks like for early and mid inflection points where you as an investor can look at your company and say good job and and it can't just be sales because that's so far away even for these ag and industrial not for material science stuff so that's that's not that far away um, well, but it's many steps between your first investment and the bad outcome, right? And so how do you measure success along the way and who's buying and selling, you know, licensing materials and what's the what's that ecosystem look like? 
Well, it depends on what you're talking. So if we want to, you know, on the, the ag side of things, we can talk all day about what goes in the soil right there. And there are, who's buying that? Well, your farmers are going to buy that because they're trying to optimize yield in the commodity. But if you're, if you're talking about material science, so you, you have all different verticals, right? So you could even have consumer products. So those genes right there, do you wish that, you know, you could optimize them to be waterproof? Or do you wish that they could last longer, like every time that you go and wash them? Or what about building okay. manufacturers that want to have incredibly high tensile strength yet light uh, materials to build buildings like there's a number of sure. there, every vertical is biologically or biochemically yeah, based and I want glow in the dark tattoos that tell, that tell me how much you have UV exposure I have also but like you know the future is hard to, to make without buy side pressure to pull it up like market pull is is the most important thing when I look at startups is like how long is it going to be before so, uh, an entity with influence in that industry sort of engages and if you have to build that vertical all by yourself, it's just hard and it takes a long time and you worry that some kind of massive macroeconomic correction can happen like the oil price drop that killed biofuels and then you're effed, right? So No, you have to start at a price that's below that. That's the issue. I mean, you can't start at Well, yeah, price. that's why next-gen biofuels is doing such a smarter – not biofuels, next-gen synbio is going after high-value specialty compounds and things like flavors and fragrances and ingredients and nutraceuticals and – food stock that don't have that price pressure from a giant international trillion plus dollar commodity like oil. Well, you also have to continue to look at macroeconomic perspective as well within the chemicals industry right now. So Dow and DuPont, the two biggest players have just merged, right? And they split into four different companies. It's a phenomenon called deverticalization. So that's what happens. You have smaller, better capped companies that have come out of a merger that are all competing all of a sudden with each other. And so that's a ripe, that will it's a ripe acquisition yeah. environment. For well, I mean, biotech works a little similar, and that's what's sort of So does ag. Yeah. Ag is the same thing. So these consolidative and then decentralization pressures that are happening are going to push acquisitions for these startups. Dylan, so, uh, you say more about where you think the opportunities are for people looking to build companies in biotech. Well, I, I think the most important thing for like maybe uh, you know people listening to this podcast is if you come from technology and you come from software, you need to find people from industry and the industry you want to tackle, and that that's probably even more important than finding that science. Like bio co-founders, sure, if you want to go cure aging, you really want to work. Yep. You know, if you want to go cure any disease, you need to have that knowledge base. But before you build something, make sure there's a market for it. And that means engage with early, do your lean startup customer development and have those conversations. Because, you know, I, I, as someone who built a startup out of school that was, you know, a technology in search of an application, it's, it's a really hard viewpoint to get out of when you're the technologist. And when you're coming into a new field as like a successful, you know, player, entrepreneur, programmer, you think you can just kill it. And that's fine, but go read molecular biology of the cell first and make sure you can you know, use your language correctly and be, be aware of how complicated and nuanced the space is. But the specific opportunities are going to be you know, where the action is. And we talked about immuno oncology because, you know, how about gene therapy? Like how many companies have gone public in the last couple of years before they had anything in a human? And that's because of the need and the demand that every time you cure a little child of a disease that was going to kill her, that's another like feather in your hat. But so I, do, I think I think you bring up a great point though that 
there's there's very few pivots within that space. Uh-huh. And so the, you better get it right the first time and you better have an idea of what you're shooting well, at because thing, you're not pivoting. Well, the worst thing you can do as a enamored with your science uh, entrepreneur, you know, is sit, put your head down and get a bunch of data that you think really matters and then go show it to somebody who you want to partner with and have them say, okay, but what about the, that data that you didn't collect? And then you have to go back and find more money to go do those experiments. So find some consensus understanding of what your customers want to see. And those customers are the companies that are going to license or acquire your, your assets. If you're discovering new drugs, you know, diagnostics is tricky. Find a route to market that doesn't involve this nonsense around, not that it's nonsense. You know, I understand the motivations that make payers need ROI to pay, but it's broken and it sucks to have to talk to anybody who's fighting not to help people. So like, I just want to, I like to invest in things that help people. So my biggest thing is I'm, I I tell this to every entrepreneur (laughs) I speak with in the space, whether or not I invest them or not. I'm thankful that they chose to work on something that's meaningful. So they could have gone and worked on anything. They could have gone and and worked on showing people what they want to buy, like a big box retailer before they know they want to buy it at Surface Nat. They they could have gone and worked on a a ride-sharing application or something like that. But instead, they chose something that's unbelievable meaningful. And what's great is that it's not just human health, too. Like These are supply chain changing problems that can be global. And that is really, really important and impactful that people go and work on that. That's something that I entered into the valley, like thinking, knowing, being a physician. And I'm very thankful to see those that are working on those problems. Yeah. And I mean, I'll add that there is an anarchic component to the future of biology that is important to be aware of. Like we talked about the open insulin project and that wasn't trying to be inflammatory. Like that's a real thing. And you saw the FDA freak out about the self-inflicted CRISPR gene therapy. And all of this is coming, and it's coming faster than we think. And, you know, there will be apps that we use to diagnose these diseases for ourselves without anyone's permission, and if we have to get them, and, you know, the point is this technology won't get, won't be stopped, and we need to be really conscientious about how we form, you know, our, our work around it. Yeah, well, and we need to be conscientious, too, about built-in controls is the other thing. Something we haven't touched on is that if, if in fact biology progresses as fast and as far as we expect it to, there's a number of malignant things that can, can be done with it. And like, that's something that, um, is, is really interesting to explore. And there's a lot of really smart people that are working on that right now to try to set up a framework for that. So, yeah, well, whether it's like the cat's out of the bag or not, race to be seen, I, I, I bet we're going to see humans with, with like wings that they grew on themselves within a decade or two.